Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Namisha Ladva. And I have my first experience of married people talk to each other with their eyes with no words. (laughs) And his eyes basically say to me, zip it. That and more. But before that, you know, these days you can get pretty much anything you want on demand, like This podcast, you can listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages? You can get postage on demand with Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can access all of the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer and then the mail carrier picks it up. You just click Print, mail, you're done. It couldn't be easier. We've been using Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio for years now. At this point, it's just a no-brainer. We would not go back to mailing any other way. And right now, you can use Risk for this special offer. It includes up to $55 of free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Now, here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Kevin Yost behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Understanding. These are two stories from our Los Angeles show recently, and one story from a recent Washington, D.C. show we did. Speaking of Washington, D.C., Oh my goodness gracious, this is, it it continues to be a terribly, terribly frightening and fraught and 
perilous time we're living in. So it is really, really wonderful that there are organizations to help get out the vote. You know, if you haven't looked online at swingleft.org or the last weekend org, which is, you know, all about helping people to volunteer to get out the vote during the last weekend before the midterms, or indivisible.org. There are so many amazing organizations right now that you can look up online and, you know, see how you can volunteer a few hours, a whole weekend, uh, volunteer from the phone or out on the ground. There's all kinds of opportunities for how you can reach people and make a difference for these upcoming midterm elections that happen on November 6th. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Paul Gilmartin, who has the amazing podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. If you've never checked it out, you really should. But before that, we're going to start with another favorite of ours, Nimisha Ladva. She has a story in the Risk book. You can find her on Twitter at Nimisha Ladva. And here she is now with a story we call mother-in-law so I'm married And I'm in a multicultural marriage. I'm an immigrant and uh, my parents are Indian. And I'm married to a nice Jewish boy from Chicago and his name is David. Now we've been married a few years now, quite a few years actually. But the story I want to tell happens in the very first year of our marriage. It's March and it's my birthday. And David says to me that he wants to take me to New York for the day. And I am delighted. Like, this is what marital bliss is like. You get special things with your special person. And then David tells me that this is actually, it's a share birthday uh, because his mother, my mother-in-law, is going to come with us because her birthday is in March as well. Now, I am a mere mortal and, and I feel a little bit less special And I have some small-minded thoughts about this. And I know that I should let the feeling pass through my body like gas or some other bodily dysfunction. But I don't. Because the truth is, Elaine, my mother-in-law, has not exactly welcomed me into the family. I'll give you two examples. So first of all, In all the years I knew her, she actually died a couple of years ago, but in all the years I knew her, she never learned to say my name correctly. And I would give her helpful tutorials. I would say things like, Elaine, just say Felicia. And she would say, Felicia. And I'd say, and then put a nim in front. And she would say, Demisha? No, it's not Demisha. Demisha? No. I just felt like if she cared really In 15 years, she might have figured it out. On the few occasions that she said it right, it was a complete fluke. So I didn't think she cared enough to learn my name. And I told you two examples. So the second example happened actually right after we got engaged. And 
It's when David is trying to tell me something about a conversation he has had with his mother. Now, David is a business school professor. He speaks in nice paragraphs. They have topic sentences. There are transitions. It's lovely. He's very understandable. But on this day when he's trying to tell me about his mom, it's not going so well. It sounds a bit like this, like, <coughs> uh, Nimisha, so like, uh, Wisconsin, and also um, California. Uh, you know, so you're ready, right? Uh, yeah, you ready? For what? Like, I can make nothing out of what he said. The most I can figure out is that their family vacations were all in Wisconsin and that Elaine has spent some time in California and Arizona, and that's it. That is Elaine's sum total of experience in the world. And, and he's basically saying she's sort of limited. And, and then he says, so are you ready? And I'm like, ready for what? And he says, well, I have to tell you something. When I told her I wanted to marry you, her first question was, so is she black? And right then and there, all the blood rushes out of my head and it is replaced by fear and anger. And time stands completely still while I have a million thoughts in fast and slow motion at the same time. And I'm thinking, what the heck? The only thing this woman cares about is the color of my skin? Like, she doesn't care that I have decent credit and a clean driving record. I'm also a pretty good cook. Like, that doesn't matter. And there's some sort of hierarchy of boys that are appropriate for her son, of girls that are appropriate for her son, and they're like, you know, nice white Jewish girls on top, blonde, blue-eyed shiksa temptresses underneath. And then the broad category of not good enough, bad, and wrong that is black. And does an Indian fit into that? And I start panicking because I realize, what if David just answered, uh, no, mom, she's not black, and left her taxonomy and racism of the world intact? What if he didn't challenge her? What if he didn't defend me? What if this is the most important conversation we haven't had yet in our relationship? And there is a silence between us that is like glass. It is the silence that happens when two people have built a world together and it is about to crack and shatter. I am too afraid to ask David how he answered that question. And he looks at me and he tells me, we got into a terrible fight, Nimisha. It was one of the worst fights I've ever had with my mother. She is wrong. I am not defending her. But I don't know if she can change. Are you ready for that? I start doing some math. I realize that I'm ready to marry David. And Elaine lives in Chicago. <laughs> and David and I live in Philadelphia. And she's only made a couple of trips out of the state. I'm ready. <laughs> I figure it's going to be okay. But I do have to, on this birthday trip, I do still have to share the day with, basically, a racist. And I should tell you, you know, the day is going to involve a nice lunch, and um, David and I are vegetarian. Uh, you might have met vegetarians like David. He had some epiphany about 
animal welfare and the warming planet. And so for 14 years, even before he met me, he was vegetarian. And then you may or may not have met vegetarians like me. I have actually never had meat in my life, at least not that I know of. I was raised Hindu in the non-violent Gandhi tradition, and I had just never had meat. I'm, t- I'm kind of a high-stakes vegetarian, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I mean, when David first met me, he did not tell me that he was vegetarian because he figured out it was that important to me. And he wanted to make sure that I liked him for him and not just for the convenience of his diet. (laughs) You know, know, two vegetarians and their Midwestern elder. I mean, in New York, you're going to find a perfect place. So I tell David, look, David, I'm going to do some research. I'll find us something Asian, maybe something Italian. We can all have something together. So no, don't worry about it. Why? Like, oh, my mom's already picked out a place. I'm like, why even pretend this is a share trip, right? <laughs> Who are we all kidding here? And so I say, well, I actually don't say anything. I just put on my sugar sweet newlywed voice and I say, sweetheart, where are we going? <laughs> and he says, we're going to the Carnegie Deli. I mean, that is a horrible choice for two vegetarians. And David did not challenge his mother at all. He's just like rolling over and rigging. It's like, why even pretend? He should just go to New York with his mom for my birthday without me. I'll just stay home and eat cold tofu out of the carton. And then I'll just take all that BPA plastic water juice. I'll just rub it on me because no one will care. David won't care. Elaine doesn't care. And I start to feel like this trip to New York City is basically a showdown <laughs> between me and Elaine and whose side David is really on. So we get to New York. We get to the Carnegie Deli. The first thing I experience is an aggressive meat smell when you walk in the door and the sort of lardy, greasy feeling under my feet. And we get in, we are shown our table. I sit next to David. Elaine sits in front of us. And I should tell you a little bit about what Elaine looks like. So she's, at this point, she's probably early in her early 60s, but she has, for decades, only drank Tab and Diet Coke. She's never had any water, as far as I know. (laughs) She's also had decades of smoking Virginia Slim cigarettes. Uh, So she looks looks like a walnut (laughs) with blonde hair. And I mean, and you know, walnuts have a color. They're they're sort of brownish, and I mean that because she also uses self-tanner. And I'm not even going to get into the irony of that. And she's sitting across me and she's wearing like an animal print shirt. It's very spandexy and tight and it's got some cleavage showing. And she's got a purple jacket that she got in Vegas. And it is actually made of the fur of small rabbits. And it's dyed like purple. And, um, and, and I'm sitting in front of her and I'm basically just wrapped in a big down parka because I'm freezing. And in fact, Elaine's primary complaint about the way I dress is that I don't show enough skin. And then we're sitting down. Um, Elaine orders a corned beef sandwich. And uh, I actually don't know what to order at a Jewish deli, but David does. He gets us borscht and uh, potato pancakes and cheese blintzes with some cherry stuff. 
And uh, I'm at a restaurant. I'm a high-stakes vegetarian. I have some questions. And I get ready to ask them. And I look at David, and he looks right back at me. And I have my first experience of married people talk to each other with their eyes with no words. (laughs) And his eyes basically say to me, zip it. Do not ask a single question. Because I want to know if there's, you know, chicken stock or where everything was cooked. And no, I can see in his eyes, don't do it. I'm upset. It's basically like here I am, the dark person in this family, and I'm being shut up by my white man husband and his white mother. And this is not, I'm not having a very good time. Anyway, the food comes. People. Elaine's sandwich is the size of a human head. (laughs) They put it down in front of her, and she just... She just lays into it like she's made a kill. And she's like really like, like it's too big to bite into, right? So she's like getting her fingers all in it. And this is in the time before her cataract surgery. So she can't exactly see what's happening. So as she gets little pieces of meat in her fake nails, she's secretly but not so secret. She's flicking them out. And I... I, who is sitting right across from her, I am being assaulted by meat missiles. They are incoming. So I look at David, and I'm ready to have one of those married people talk with their eyes moments, and I look at him. And he doesn't look at me. He's just got the biggest, dumbest smile I've ever seen on a grown man. People, I'm on my own. I do what I have to do. I make a vegetarian protection fortress. I move the ketchup and the mustard a little bit closer. I put the menu against it. I move the napkins this way. And then with the salt and pepper, I get another menu. And I like made my safe space, right? And just as I'm about to take a bite of food, Elaine's hand reaches through the defenses and she takes my right hand. And the first thought in my mind is, there is meat juice on my dominant hand. All I want to do is run to the bathroom, wash, and maybe cry a little bit because I'm not having a good time. But I don't. I look at Elaine And I see that there are tears in her eyes. And boom, it is like I see her for the first time. I see her as David has seen her the entire trip. Here she is, a widow who lives alone. A woman who still shovels her own snow in Chicago. A girl from the Midwest who has never been to New York but has made it for the first time and people, she is having the sandwich of her dreams. She says, thank you, honey. And I say, you're welcome, Elaine. And I look at her and I know that she has had a limited life with limited experiences. And I am the weirdest person she has ever had to deal with in her life. And I'm married to her son. 
and I see my hand in hers, and I see my engagement ring. It used to belong to Elaine, and before that, to her dear aunt Goldie. It was actually one of the only pieces of valuable jewelry she owned. And when David told her that he wanted to marry me, she had given it to him to give to me on the same day that she asked if I was black. People are complicated. The only thing Elaine and I had in common was that we both loved David. And that made us a family. I should have been ashamed of myself. I should have been ashamed of my vegetarian princess routine. I should have been ashamed of setting up a showdown between me and my mother-in-law, because that is a bad way to run a marriage. <laughs> and I should have been ashamed that I had reduced her to her racism, just as she had reduced me to my race. I should have been ashamed, but I was not because of the one thing in the world that beats shame every time. In that moment, I began to love my mother-in-law. Thank you. I start at the beginning. That's always such a good place to start. First of all, thanks for having me, Beowulf. And thank you guys for being here. And another round of applause for the great storytellers. It's, uh, it's a little intimidating coming up <clears throat> and telling, you know, it's nerve-wracking enough telling a story at a cocktail party, but uh, telling it in front of uh, strangers who paid to get in is a little nerve-wracking. Um, but fortunately, I'm dead inside. So... <laughs> Actually, that is something that I, that, that I uh, have struggled with my whole life. I went through some stuff as a kid that, you know, my coping mechanism was, was to kind of shut down and, and just ignore what it was that I was feeling. And then I got sober about 15 years ago, and I began to feel my feelings. And I realized, oh, that's why uh, I like getting fucked up, because these feelings are really uncomfortable. But... I found a support group meeting that I really, really liked, and it was uh, a men's group, and there were uh, a lot of older men in there who kind of became father figures, and there was also guys my age, and it began to feel like home for me, and I've been going to this same meeting every Thursday night for 15 years, and about three months ago, I was in the meeting, and it's in a little strip mall in North Hollywood, and uh, that's me bragging. And um, <laughs> in the parking lot, we hear pop, 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 
and everybody pauses. And then the door to the meeting room swings open and a guy comes running in, screaming in pain with a wound in his femoral artery in his thigh and it's squirting like a, like a cartoon, like arcing out of his leg and he collapses. There's probably 40 or 50 of us in this meeting and it's a tiny little space and there's only one door, the door that the guy came through. So we don't know if the shooter is following this guy and if he's gonna come finish him off. So everybody's kind of up and out of their seat wondering who do I hide behind? <laughs> and it was like watching a movie. I felt so dissociated from it. I, I understood that it was happening but it didn't feel like I was completely there. And there was a part of me that wanted to hide, to get as far in the corner as I could, but there was another part of me that was fascinated, that loves stuff that's dark, that ever since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated with darkness, I suppose. And there was a part of me that wanted to get a closer look. But within seconds of this guy collapsing, the four guys seated closest to him surrounded him, and they didn't seem to care that somebody might be coming in to finish this guy off. And one guy named Jamie also goes by Jimmy. That's the nice thing about getting sober. You meet people who have aliases. <laughs> Sticks his fingers in the guy's leg wound to keep him from bleeding out. And he's yelling, you know, call an ambulance, do this, you know, do that. And the three other guys are a guy named Jonathan, a guy named Makunda, and a guy named Kevin. And Kevin is, Kevin is a, a, a loner one of the most shy people I've, I've ever met. And he started tending to the wound that this guy had in his stomach. And Makunda and Jonathan were cradling his head and talking to him. And this kid was, had clearly been up on a meth run for a while and um, was asking for his mom and was asking, am I gonna die, am I gonna die? And so these guys were cradling his head and they had their face right, right next to his face and were telling him, breathe deep, you know, that it's gonna be okay. Even, even though they weren't sure it was gonna be okay because when there's gunshots, uh, the police have to come before an ambulance can to make sure that it's safe for the ambulance drivers. So as they're tending to him, I'm standing in the middle of the room and I felt shame because I wasn't doing anything. And yes, it was too crowded for anybody to more to really get in there, but I didn't want to go see if, if, if something more could be done, but I also didn't want to leave. And, you know, when I went to that meeting, I was feeling pretty good about myself, but 
it, it doesn't take much for me to shame myself for what I'm thinking or feeling. And I was just marveling as I was watching these guys go to work because they would kind of dip down. You know, it was, it was pretty obscured from view because they were surrounding him. And then I remember at one point Jonathan got up and it looked like he had dipped both of his arms in blood above his elbows. And I just thought, my God, the, those are men. You know, I felt like a, a little boy standing there. And it struck me that these guys have robbed people, have been in prison, have been deadbeat dads, all of the shit that when we look at it, we think, you know, fuck that person. You know, we should put them all on an island, that whole trope. The police eventually came, the ambulance came. They were able to, to save this guy's life. And as I was leaving the parking lot, first of all, there's something kind of cool about being inside the police tape. <laughs> it's so fucked up. But I was like, wow, this is, so many times I've driven by something where there's police tape and, and wondered, oh, I wonder what's going on in there. But I felt like I was floating, like it didn't, it didn't feel real. And I was making jokes because I didn't want to deal with not knowing what I felt and feeling shame for not feeling sad. And as I was driving home, uh, I, I, was, I, could bear, I only lived two miles from there, but I could barely concentrate on where, where I was going. And I started thinking about those guys and who they used to be and who they are today. And I decided that I, wanna, I wanted to have them on the podcast. And so Jonathan and Makunda came on to talk about it. And they both said, well, Jonathan in particular said his first instinct is he used to be in a gang and he would rob other drug dealers. and. You know, he grew up with a vicious dad who told him, you know, if, you know, if, you're, if, if you're not the one who's beating someone down, you know, you're weak. And he's become this really sensitive, beautiful man. And he said his first instinct when that guy came in was to jump over him and get the fuck out of there. But something in him didn't. And... I think that's what I found in that meeting is there is a greater consciousness that becomes available to us when we ask for help, when we shed our egos and become vulnerable. There is a power in community that I discovered there that it has been kind of like college for me in my life. And as I was interviewing them, I shared with them that I felt a combination of numbness and shame because I didn't do anything. And Jonathan said to me, you helped save that guy's life. And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? And he said, the way I discovered that meeting was you started bringing me there. And as hard as that was 
for me to accept. I knew that there was a sliver of truth in that, that by me turning my life around, there have been positive ripples. And the way I learned to bring people to meetings was by watching an older guy who seemed happy. So I started doing it. I guess that must be when people talk about God or a higher power, that feeling of peace and purpose that I get when I'm there. I think that must be what people search for when they, when they look for some type of comfort in the world. And I had seen a suicide by cop about a year or two earlier. It was in Studio City. Come visit the valley. <laughs> and I chose to watch it. I was about 70 yards away and this guy wanted to commit suicide so he had a toy gun and police surrounded him. And when he pulled the gun up, they, they shot him. And I felt nothing. I never cried. I guess I just have to accept that, that it, that's how I deal with things and it's not a moral statement on my, on my character. But the thing that I took away from watching these guys do what they did, which I don't think I could have. I could bring somebody to a meeting, but I can't put my fingers in somebody's leg. The thing that I took away from it is that people who are a quote-unquote cancer on our society, if they connect to something bigger than themselves and they get vulnerable, they can become the medicine that can help society. Thank you. is risk this is liz vice behind me now i'm sorry to <laughs> that that song got so religious i didn't really mean that i if uh 
If there was a secular Buddhist version of that song, I would have run with that. Let's just assume it's the higher power of your understanding she's singing about. Uh, The quantum field, maybe. Or the photosynthesis of chlorophyll. (laughs) I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about now. Okay. It's time for me to give a big shout out to two fans who have become Patreon patrons of ours, Megan Driscoll and Heather Reed. They signed up to give us $25 or more per month at patreon.com slash risk. Thank you so much to both. It means so much to us to get this support from our fans, and we really, really, really need it. So if you want to help keep Risk running, go there to patreon.com slash risk and help us out as well. There's also tons of bonus content that you have access to when you sign up there. Also, if you have purchased the Risk book and you want to encourage other people to buy it too, why don't you do this? Make a little recording of yourself encouraging other people to buy the book. You know, say what it is that you love about the book. Maybe share a little anecdote of some personal experience you've had with the book or what it means to you and send it to us and we might play it on an episode. You know, try to keep your little recording to definitely less than 60 seconds. Then email it to kevin at risk-show.com. It was a couple weeks ago that we checked and found out that only 4% of our listeners had bought the book so far. I don't know what that number is at this point, but we would love to get that up to, say, 25% as soon as possible. So send us a recording of you encouraging your fellow Risk listeners to goddamn buy the thing finally, whether it's in the audiobook form or the ebook form or, of course, the paperback. And you can find it wherever books are sold or you can just go to theriskbook.com. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from the wonderful Jillian Safransky. Jillian told this one at the Risk Live show that we do once a month in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. You can find her at yogijillian.com. Here she is now with a story we call Note to Self. Competitive work ethic in my family was always normalized. By 15, I worked at a truck stop off I-75 so that I could buy my own car, so that I could drive an hour to get to a performing arts high school outside of my hometown. I took out student loans, I cashed in every scholarship I could, and I worked full time to put myself through college. I had the hustle dialed in. I, I loved it, I loved it. But there is a dark side to burning that work ethic candle on both ends. By the time I graduated from college, I wasn't just tired. I was bitter and angry. I was resentful of my peers who didn't have to take out student loans, didn't even have to work while they were in college and they still didn't show up to class on time or have their lines memorized for scene study. I was 22, 
and I felt like I felt like a dissatisfied and very broke 45-year-old. And I knew that I couldn't start my life like that. I needed a serious attitude adjustment. So I booked myself a one-way ticket. I moved to Australia with one goal, to learn to surf. And I did. <laughs> my competitive gymnast body fell in love with the physicality of surfing. I loved how aggressive it was and challenging. I felt so free when I was surfing. Australia gave me the permission to finally be my age. I felt like my 22-year-old self was finally taking her rightful real estate back. But I didn't realize how significant that moment was until I was casually giving some family directions outside of the opera house. And I was like, holy shit, I'm a local. <laughs> Me, Jill from this small ass town in South Florida, I did this. And I was so overwhelmed with this feeling of accomplishment and the fearlessness it took to make it happen. And I was like, oof. I have got to somehow bottle this up and preserve this. So I stopped at the nearest surf shop and I bought myself this cheesy postcard with like a koala bear surfing. <laughs> and I wrote myself a quick little love note because I had no idea what was next, but I knew that I was going to take this feeling with me no matter what. So I threw a stamp on it and I mailed it to my dad's house in Florida because I wasn't sure what my new address was going to be, but I was ready. I was ready for my next chapter of life. So I went back to Boston and met up with my boyfriend and we packed up his silver Mazda protege with all of our things and there we were, two super doe-eyed actors ready to take on Los Angeles. <laughs> Ugh. But man, I remember that drive so well. My favorite moments on that drive were actually when he was asleep. He was a kind of drooling, dead to the world kind of sleeper. And I would blast Dashboard Confessional. <laughs> and I would sing every ounce of my longing out of my body while I gripped that steering wheel and I felt like I was driving right into the heart of my life. <sighs> we planned to stop in Chicago to stay with my best friend and I got to see some Chicago improv and I ate a pumpkin pancake the size of my head. And then I started to feel like I was getting the flu which I did not accept, so I just pumped some fluids and I told myself that I was fine. But the pain got so intense so quickly, specifically in my spine, and the pain actually started giving me seizures. And I've never had a seizure in my life. And then I started vomiting uncontrollably, and the thought of going to the ER to me was far scarier because I no longer had health insurance. I was a recent college grad, so I was like, no, 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 I'm just gonna muscle through this and I'm gonna be fine. But my best friend and my boyfriend were adamant about getting me to the ER, and the second I got to the ER, the staff threw me into an isolation room, and from that moment on, everyone who dealt with me 
wore protective gear, masks, full body suits. They thought that I had spinal meningitis, which is fatal and highly contagious. And in order to get diagnosed, you have to have a spinal tap. So I found out that the spinal tap specialist was on vacation. Um, so I had to get an inexperienced resident to do my spinal tap. And they put me in this room and on a really high metal table that was very cold and he asked me to undress and he instructed me to tuck myself into the tightest ball possible so that I could expose my vertebrae. And he told me not to move at all. In fact, if I could stop breathing for a little while because any movement could be detrimental to me. So I put on my toughest game face, but I was, I was horrified, horrified. And I squeezed my six foot something boyfriend's hand and I felt that needle start to press into my back and as soon as I started to feel pain, he fucking fell to the floor. My boyfriend collapsed to the floor. <laughs> and they had to pull him out into the hallway. And I saw him through a crack in the window, breathing through a brown paper bag. And then the spinal tap guy was complaining to me that he couldn't get to my spinal fluid because my vertebrae, it was just too close. I was like, isn't that what vertebrae is? It's closely, I, I don't understand, and you're making this about me when really, you're, clearly, you just suck at your job. And then I started getting pissed, because I was like, you know what? If you can't do this, do I have to pay for it? I mean, how expensive is a spinal tap anyway? And for a moment, that anger, like, <laughs> it felt powerful, and I felt like for a moment, maybe I was in control. It was like a really nice feeling of being in control when clearly I was just not in control at all. He attempted 12 times, and he failed every single time. He gave up, and they sent me back to the isolation room, and within 24 hours, my body rapidly started to deteriorate. My lungs started collapsing, and my organs started failing, and then I was alone in the room at this time, and I remember it because all of the machines started beeping really loud, and a nurse came running in, and she told me that my potassium levels were so scary low that she was going to need to inject potassium into my IV. Luckily, I had a dear friend of mine show up right at this time, Sue. Sue's got these little hands. And I, I just remember squeezing her hand. They, they, her hands felt like Play-Doh. And I squeezed Sue's hand, and the nurse told me that the potassium was going to be, hands down, the most excruciating thing I have ever felt. She said, and because it was so painful, it was going to take about 10 minutes to do it. It felt like there were razors, like razors were being pushed into my veins. She wasn't wrong. This was the worst pain I had felt up to this point. And I squeezed Sue's hand, and a scream, a series of screams came out of my body that I didn't even know I was capable of. And at some point, that scream was no longer about the physical pain. It was far deeper than that. 
I couldn't have prepared for what I was stepping into. I was discovering my greatest fear and experiencing it at the exact same time. How? How do I live in a broken body? How do I trust this body? How can I live in a body I can't trust or control? A body that I can't have the adventurous life that I really feel like I was put on this planet to live. To me, this was far worse than dying. I felt like I was losing the life of my dreams that was just beginning. And I am not a graceful loser. My boyfriend had to leave me in the hospital because he had a job he had to get to in Los Angeles. I had been there for about a week now. And so the two actors that we were dying to become lived out our goodbye hospital scene in real time. (laughs) Method actors. (laughs) And it wasn't until I saw him walk out of that room that I I had that sinking feeling of like, oh, fuck, I'm not going to get to see the Grand Canyon. I'm not going to get to sing and howl terribly at the red rocks of the West. My new scrambled reality started to solidify. And then 12 doctors came into the room with clipboards and bodysuits to inform me that they still did not know why I was so sick and not getting better, but they were going to be conducting a class in my hospital room to discuss me and to let me know that I was awarded patient of the month. (laughs) I sat in that bed and listened to them talk about me like I was a character in a movie, and for a moment, I actually did kind of get a little excited. So I called my brother to tell him about my new suite award, and he was like, Jill, you're like in an episode of House. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I am. Except I don't think I'm getting any residual checks for this gig at all. In fact... They discharged me with a hundred grand of debt and no diagnosis. I had no idea that the uncertainty and the struggle that I had been facing for the last couple weeks in that hospital was really only just the beginning. It would take me another five years of advocating for myself and begging insurance companies to cover me for me to learn that I have chronic Lyme disease. I had to go back to Florida, and I had to go live with my dad. I was skinny and depleted and devastated that I was back in that house that I swore I would never live in again. And then he handed me some mail, and he said, hey, this came for you when you were gone. I recognized it immediately. Fucking koala on a surfboard. There was really nobody else I needed to hear from more than that girl that I thought I had lost 
My body felt so different now, but I was reminded that the girl who wrote that postcard, she's unbreakable, and she's still in here. And up to this point, I really had no idea that my physical strength is actually not just in my body, it's in my core. It's in me, it's in my spirit. When I read the words that I wrote to myself on that postcard, it felt like I was whispering into my ear. Hey, Jill, you did it. You made this happen when it seemed impossible. I am so proud to be you, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. is all for this week's episode folks this is sarah humphreys behind me now and we just heard from jillian safransky parts of today's episode were edited by our editor marty garcia and of course our episode editor jeff Barr. now if you live anywhere near denver colorado come on out on october 4th we're going to be at the bluebird theater On October 4th in Denver, Colorado, at the Bluebird Theater. Come on out, folks. And then, if you're in Los Angeles on October 20th, get yourself to the Bootleg Theater. We're going to be doing our monthly live show in Los Angeles at the Bootleg on October 20th. October 25th is when we're back in New York City at Caveat. That is October 25th. New York City at Caveat. Come on out. And then on November 14th, we are at the Bell House with body storytelling. You know, last year we did a body slash risk collaboration show of all kinky stories. We're doing that again on November 14th at the Bell House. And we're still taking pitches for that. So if you have kinky stories, pitch them to us. 
at pitchesatrisk-show.com. Hey, you know, a great way to introduce more friends to the podcast is to point them to the classic Risk Singles episodes that we're putting out now every Thursday. It's a great way for a newcomer to get to know the podcast because each episode is a classic, a great story. And it's just one story, so it's easy to listen to, easy to digest. There's not a bunch of announcements and everything. Check it out and send your friends our way to check it out as well. Everything else you might be curious about about Risk is at risk-show.com. You can stream our episodes there. You can find out where our next live shows are. You can pitch us. There's a submissions page there. You can find out how to support us, where our Patreon is and all that. There's a shop there. You can learn more about the Risk book there. And if you want to learn about our school where we teach storytelling, that is at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. People who have ordered the risk book. People who have ordered the risk book. There's Rachel Peckman and Brittany Western. There's Alex Bowling and Crystal St. Clair. There's Maria Jordan and Maxie Cifarelli. And Chris Burkett. <laughs>